set the scene for the history. Uh, Judy will then uh, talk about the history up until about the time of the founding of this society, and the McIntyres will review the history of this particular group. First on the political and then maybe on the deeper underlying cultural strains. On the political level, Felix Adler uh, was an adolescent during the Civil War. Uh, he came to age in a time when the Great West was opening and the robber barons uh, were the dominant influence in the business sector. In 1876, when the ethical movement was founded, it was the time of the centennial celebration of the nation. If you recall the bicentennial, it's a time when people really looked at our roots and some of the ideals that inspired. And the major ideal that was looked at then was the notion of freedom. And that notion of freedom was uh, extended to a lot of other institutions besides the political. In the early years of ethical culture, the Europeans referred to ethical culture as the religion of American democracy, in the sense that it separated away from the central, the notions of faith and obedience to a creed and introduced the idea of education to the religious sphere, the sphere that into pe people had to think for themselves, gather information. So it was a time of liberation. But there were far deeper currents that Adler was very aware of that really lied the, laid the underpinnings of the ethical culture movement. On one side, you would see religion, supernatural religion, and on the other, science. And Adler thought that an ethical religion was necessary to go between the two. The threats were from both. He saw the threats from religion, supernatural religion, as being from a, a way of mind and culture and character that had been predominant for thousands of years. And that was a sense that at the, on this earth walked not only humans, uh, but gods. And that there was another realm that interfered with the human realm. And that only by appealing to, appeasing that supernatural realm can human life go well. Adler was concerned about superstition, and he was concerned about ritual and kind of idol worship. For what he saw in Judaism and Christianity at its core was ethics. People striving to know how to live with other people so that life enhanced life. He saw that as the core of Judaism and certainly of the Jesus teachings and the best of Christianity. And he was concerned that religion return to make prominent and outstanding its ethical component over its superstitious or ritual component. On the other side, we have in the sciences, well, you have Newton introducing now a very mechanistic, mechanical universe in which it was very easy for the individual to see themselves as not very important, just part of a larger mechanism. We have social Darwinism, which puts forward the idea of the strong dominating the weak, and this was the way it ought to be. And you have, in the economic sphere, the idea that the buyer should beware, the strong again should dominate the meek, and therefore 
uh, the best for human society would be served. He saw in the exploitive, mechanistic, scientific uh, side some danger that the importance of human life be lost. And he saw also in the superstitious side the same danger. And so he saw a need for a religion that put ethics at its center and a politics and a way of life that put care for human beings at the center. And this is the historical purpose that Adler saw himself serving. The first part of the history, the most of the history of other culture, will be given to us by Judy Toth. To introduce her, I'd like to go back a few years, about four or five years, when um, we needed someone to manage our office. And we were uh, tremendously concerned because we thought we had a job that nobody could handle. It ranges from uh, keeping books to managing this building. And one of the delights of the job is that you have a very strong uh, supervisory staff. You have about <laughs> 280 people who are there to tell you what you need to do. And that was one of the delights of the job that many people um, found threatening. Um, but it was a very difficult job. And we really worried we wouldn't find someone who could handle the scope of it. And then um, Judy came, and she handled the scope of it. And then she began to develop systems that expanded the scope of it. And uh, pretty soon, um, she was uh, running the place in a very creative fashion. And then she had some extra energy. And so as a member and a volunteer, she began teaching courses in our adult education program. And she became part of one of our teacher training programs to teach even more courses. And so became a very strong presence here. Um, and the last year, she has uh, been thinking about becoming a professional leader in ethical culture. And this spring, she applied. And only, I guess it was two weeks ago now, she was accepted by our national organization into the program. And so she's now a provisional leader in training. And this is probably her first official act as a leader in training. <laughs> and so please welcome, for her first platform appearance, Judy Toth. Uh, I'm the new kid on the block, and uh, I'm giving my first platform during the summer, and I have hopes that if my ratings are good, they'll give me a slot in the regular season. <laughs> I've chosen to speak on ethical culture for two reasons. Uh, first, because with all the new members that we have in the society now, there are a large group of us, including me, who don't have a sense of our identity in terms of our history. And second, because as a leader in training, one of the skills and strengths that I need to develop is a history of ethical culture and its philosophy. So in researching the platform address for this morning, it's a wonderful opportunity to develop this area. A history of ethical culture could only begin with one man, Felix Adler. Born the son of a prominent New York rabbi, Felix was sent to Europe to study and come back to the States and be the heir apparent to his father's job 
as the rabbi in Temple Emanuel in New York. Now Felix Adler's family was, his family lineage was that of a long line of rabbis. And so when he came back to America to speak, his congregation was very excited and very curious about this 22-year-old man. Felix rose to deliver his first sermon. In it, he said, religion must not be confined to church and synagogue alone. It shall go forth into the marketplace, shall sit by the judge in the tribunal, by the counselor in the hall of legislation, shall stand by the merchant in his warehouse and the working man at his work. Then shall religion, in truth, become a cause, not of strife, but of harmony, laying its greatest stress not on the believing, but the acting out, a religion such as Judaism ever claimed to be, not of the creed, but of the deed. We discard the narrow spirit of exclusion and loudly proclaim that Judaism was not given to the Jews alone, but that its destiny is to embrace, in one moral state, the whole family of man. Reactions to Adler's speech ranged from shock to embarrassment. Adler was calling for the giving up of the identity of Judaism for some unknown quantity known as the family of man. Worse than that, he hadn't mentioned a word about God. So those of, in the congregation came up to him and said, you didn't mention God. Don't you believe in God anymore? And Adler said, not as you define it. Well, this was the final blow. Needless to say, he was not elected to seed his dad in the Temple Emanuel. Some agreed with Adler's ideas, however, and they came to him with a signed petition with a hundred names on it, asking him to speak. And they engaged Standard Hall in New York for his first platform on May 15th, in 1876, over a hundred years ago. Adler called for a new movement, eliminating all theological considerations and bringing into one fellowship the free thinker and the atheist, the agnostic and the deist, the religionist and the secularist. Adler said, we feel a great need Religion which ought to stand for the tri highest truth has ceased to be true for us. We see it at war with the highest intelligence of the day. We see that millions are annually lavished upon the mere luxuries of religion. Gorgeous temples, churches, and on the elaborate apparatus of salvation. We cannot but reflect that if one tithes of the sums that thus set apart were judiciously expended upon the wants of the many who are famishing, distress might often be relieved. By the year 1879, three years later, 
the New York Society for Ethical Culture had been established with over 500 members. Adler's platforms focused on the fact that we must learn about ethics, then translate this knowledge into action. That is, how to know what is right and how to translate that belief into action. Adler stated that most people see themselves as having worth and thereby see others as having worth, rather than the use we could put them to. By worth, he meant that each person, each one of us, would conceive of ourselves as indispensable, necessary, irreplaceable, and unique. Then we would see that we have a significant place in the universe. Therefore, how could they, we then see ourselves as not having a place in the world and not being able to make a difference? What Adler was asking for was a leap of faith, while other more traditional religions called for a leap of faith in God, Adler is calling for a leap of faith in ourselves. He said, the vice that underlies all vices is that we hold one another cheaply, and far worse, in our inmost soul, we think cheaply of ourselves. And so, conversely, when one experiences one's self-worth and is able to perceive self-worth in others, it naturally follows that we can act to elicit the best in others and thereby elicit the best in ourselves. His platforms focused on the fact that deed without creed is meaningless and creed without deed is empty. Operating out of this belief, the New York Society for Ethical Culture began what Howard Radist in his book Toward Common Ground Calls, a magnificent pioneering record of social service that set a pattern for the ethical movement. In 1877, the District Nursing Department was founded which was a forerunner of today's visiting nurse service. A band of brave women organized and paid for by the Ethical Society <clears throat> went into the tenement areas of New York and ministered to the poor. This is particularly ironic that women were involved in the first social action efforts of the ethical movement. Up till then, their role had been to fix dinner on Sunday morning while their husbands went down to hear Felix Adler speak. And then, during dinner, their husbands would tell them all about what he said. Also, the first free kindergarten in the United States for poor children was organized and developed, as was an industrial school for older children. Before any welfare programs or public education, Adler himself worked zealously for social reform, and his efforts to improve 
tenement housing resulted in better tenement housing being built. In 1878, the Working Man's School was established, a model school to teach industrial education as part of a liberal education. In Radis' book, he talks about the fact that Adler and his cohorts had to go out into the Gaslight District of New York and recruit children for this school. They were generally greeted with skepticism and, why are you doing this? But they founded the school and developed it. This school reflected Adler's belief that reconstruction of industrial society was both possible and necessary. Through vocation, the participation of everyone in society would be ensured. Each person, through the development of his or her talents and through their interactions with others, would find a meaningful place in society. Therefore, the pressures of feeling isolated would be met and the suicidal pathways of war, revolution, and anarchy would be avoided. These founding deeds of ethical culture in such areas as social service, housing, politics, and education characterize concerns that are true to us today. No man, however brilliant, could hope to build a movement alone. As the movement grew, Adler began searching for leaders to train and work with him in this fledgling movement. Societies developed in Chicago, Philadelphia, and St. Louis, and were staffed by leaders personally trained by Adler. William McIntyre Salter led the Chicago Society. Salter's background included everything from sheep herding to writing a well-known book on Nietzsche. S. Byrne Weston, the leader of the Philadelphia Society, was a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and a former Unitarian. Walter Sheldon, installed as the leader of St. Louis, was the brother-in-law of Burns Weston and was also a graduate of the University of Berlin. Mention should also be made at this point of Stanton Coit, who became our first European leader in London at South Place Church. All these men were extremely active in social reform. Perhaps the man who most epitomized leadership in social action was John Lovejoy Eliot. Hired as Adler's assistant, Eliot was the opposite of Adler in many ways. Adler was associated with ideas and action. Eliot was associated with being a man of heart and action. The two of them worked together harmoniously. Adler expressed confidence in his associate, and Eliot commented, I feel very proud, as Felix thinks, I am working too hard. It makes me grin because I'm not, but I'm quite willing that he should think so. <laughs> Tension, however, developed between the two at times when Eliot sought ways of making his own mark in the name of ethical culture. Eliot moved into the slums of the west side of New York and developed what 
was known then and now as Hudson Guild. He developed clubs, a gymnasium, a library, and employment bureaus. And by the year 1897, over 200 people were involved with Elliot in this enterprise. Elliot's guiding idea was helping people to help themselves and the guild continued to grow and develop as time went on. A model tenement was built, a print shop, and in 1917, a 500-acre farm in New Jersey was added. Hudson Guild is still active to this day. In fact, the leaders meet there twice a year. Meanwhile, ethical culture was growing. By its 10th anniversary, there were over 600 members in New York and 1,200 members nationally. Over the next decade, society spread to such places as Germany, Tokyo, and New Zealand. As a result, the International Ethical Union was founded in 1892 in Germany. This was to facilitate communication between societies and fellowships around the world. At the turn of the century, issues of social reform were being addressed from ethical culture platforms. Such speakers as W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Jane Addams, William James, and John Dewey spoke on such subjects as women's rights, civil rights, educational reform, church and state issues, and international affairs. When World War I struck, it impacted deeply on ethical culture, and debates raged within societies on such subjects as neutrality and pacifism. Reviewing the war and its meaning, Adler wrote in his book, The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal, the following words. Out of the depths into which it has fallen, humanity cries today for help, but as yet there is no response. There seems, in fact, to be moral retrogression all along the line. The horror of the recent war is still felt in our bones, and yet it seems as if mankind could not take to heart its most drastic lessons. For alongside of the pacifistic current, preparations for new wars to be conducted by still more terrible methods are proceeding apace. Above all, there is one fact that strikes the observer. The so-called moral forces seem to have failed in the great crisis through which the world is passing. These words, written in 1924, seem even more prophetic today. It became more imperative to Adler's way of thinking that education was the key to reconstructing society. With this in mind, he developed the Fieldston Plan for a model school. And in 1927, $1 million had been raised to develop the school the single largest gift coming from John D. Rockefeller, Jr., who gave $250,000. In 1928, the cornerstone of Fieldson School was set 
in Riverdale, New York. Ethics, social service, and occupational skills were emphasized, and the school boasts such students as Joseph Kraft, the writer, Babette Deutsch, the poet, and J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist. This was to be Adler's last great project, and in 1933, Adler died. Telegrams and letters flooded in from around the world. Franklin Delano Roosevelt wrote to Mrs. Adler and said, those of us who were privileged to know him in life have lost a true friend and valued advisor. The nation mourns the passing of a profound philosopher, a cultural leader of spiritual force, a philanthropist, and a beloved citizen. The work of the movement continued on after Adler under the leadership of John Lovejoy Eliot. Eliot, who also had a close relationship with the Roosevelts, continued his social reform work as an influx of young, dynamic leadership into the movement began. By World War II, there were six societies and a membership of 3,700. In 1943, a group of about 30 people, led by Sidney Shore, chairman of the Committee for an Effective Congress, met with Algernon Black, the leader of the New York Society, to talk to him about forming a Washington, D.C. ethical society. Ethical culture celebrated its 70th anniversary in 1946, and under the leadership of Al Black, developed a threefold plan for the future. This entailed building up the finances of the New York Society, revitalizing the American Ethical Union, and making a contribution to the community in general by establishing the Encampment for Citizenship, a program for young people based on the assumption that to learn to be a citizen, one must have an actual experience in democratic living in a community. So camps were set up for young people to learn this. During the 50s, ethical culture grew rapidly. By 1960, there were 26 ethical societies. Today, ethical culture again is on the verge of new growth. We are challenged to apply the same kind of rigor and originality that Adler did. Felix Adler said in Life and Destiny, so act as to elicit the latent spiritual possibilities in others and thereby in thyself. The aim definitely in view should be to influence others. Not one's own interests, not even one's own spiritual interests should be the foreground of consciousness. Yet we can in no way draw out what is best in others without constantly renewing ourselves and thus attaining the highest mental and moral growth of which we are capable. As light is light when it strikes objects, so life is life when it smites on other life. 
We live truly in our radiations. We grow and develop in proportion as we help others to grow and develop. This was Felix Adler's challenge to us from the past to the future. I intend to accept this challenge, and I hope you will too. Thank you. You can't think about the founding of the Ethical Society without thinking about two couples, the Beechams and the McIntyres. The papers of incorporation are signed by three people, uh, Catherine and George Beecham and L.D. McIntyre. The notary public was Alice McIntyre. <laughs> the Beechams now are retired living in Florida, and the McIntyres are retired living here. They have, in my 10 years here, uh, been, uh, filled the role of the perfect grandparents. Um, there is, they really do know it all. I, I, I uh, find numerous occasions where we have just come to some really great conceptual breakthrough about how this place ought to run and what we ought to do, and I find myself in a conversation with them, and I find out that they had that same insight about 30 years ago and began doing it, and we forgot it and just rediscovered it again. But when I say perfect grandparents, what I mean is that they don't have a compulsive need to tell us how to do it. Uh, they just um, kind of are a, a resource so that when we go to them, they're there. And they tend to be very encouraging of what we do that they see as right. And if they see us doing something they think is wrong, they just ignore it knowing that it'll go away. <laughs> but their presence has been, I know for me personally and for many members, just a constant sense of encouragement, not only giving a sense of our own history, but their just personal warmth and genuineness has just pervaded this group um, and allowed it to go on from to a new generation and then again another new generation. Uh, and they, we owe them a lot of appreciation for that. Today specifically though, they're going to talk to us about uh, the history. Uh, LD is going to first uh, address uh, his perspective on it, and then Alice. Um, let me just say, L.D. McIntyre also, uh, in addition to being the president and a major force in this, this group, served during the 50s, what Judy said was the very large growth of over 20 societies in that time. He served in the national movement. When the national movement was in its formation, he served on the executive committee as secretary from about 1947 to 51, and then during the bulk of the 50s, the next eight years, um, he was the president of the American Ethical Union. So his scope is not only here local, uh, but he has a very wide scope of, about the ethical culture movement. LD? You know, if all of you would take the opportunity to read this, I wouldn't be up here. <laughs> I wouldn't be needed, because whatever I'm going to tell you is right in here. I know because I wrote it. This is the first 20 years of the Washington Ethical Society. And if anybody wants to find out details that I don't have time to put in, here they are. Now, I can't... I can't see what's on here 
from this distance because cataract glasses are not trifocals. I wish they were. I'd like to take you back to 1943. And the initial members of the Washington, Washington Group, it was called the Washington Group because it was the outpost of the New York Society. <laughs> they were sort of spiritual fathers and financial fathers too. They were members of the six ethical societies who uh, were in Washington on war work. On January 7, 1944, we had the first public address of the Washington, Washington Group at the um, Dodge Hotel. On January 7, 1944, it was the only non-segregated place we could find in, in the city of Washington. By January 1945, a schedule of two evening meetings a month was established. And they were, we got speakers from New York. Uh, the New York Society paid their way until they got kind of tired of doing it all by themselves. And we found out they were tired because they said they weren't going to do it anymore. <laughs> and meanwhile, we had had a speaker from Chicago and a speaker from St. Louis, quite a distance, and uh, they stopped the funding. So we had to take up a collection among the board members uh, to take care of that uh, obligation. By the way, the Chicago Society, founded in 1882, is having its 100th anniversary. So if anybody uh, wants to go to Chicago to attend that, by, we'll find out the date. By, uh, 1945, we had a schedule of two evening meetings a month. But it was the time for a permanent organization among those who wished to put down their roots in this community. So we designed fall programs for Sunday afternoons at the Friends Meeting House. They had the morning, we took the afternoon. Then came the end of World War II and the exodus from Washington. Everybody went back home. They were through. There were only left 19 families in here in the Washington Ethical Society to uh, carry on. Sunday meeting themes were established for the season and talks were planned around the themes for four to six weeks. We borrowed this uh, idea uh, from the movies, you know, the uh, continual they left her on the railroad track, you know, and then they come next week to find out what happened. Uh, so we figured that, uh, uh, that uh, one Sunday was too short to exhaust this topic, so we built themes around uh, that would take us four to six weeks. And this brought continuity because people came back to find out what was going on. One theme for the fall of 1946 was the ethical basis of religions, which was actually a study of comparative religion. It's in here. And uh, another was current ethical imperatives. That lasted for four weeks, so we kept going. There was one problem about themes. You used people who were uh, professionals, who were experts in their own area. But that, that carried certain risks because they didn't know too much about ethical culture. So we had to compensate for that by carrying a thought for the week, for, for the day, on the Sunday program. And uh, we're doing that still, for the same reason, to set a tone for what was to come after. 
And Milt Chase and I uh, were responsible for opening and closing readings. Not just a few words, but a reading. It ensured that there was an ethical message to the audience if the speaker didn't bring one. <laughs> now this proved so successful that uh, we followed that pattern for six years until we found out that there weren't enough people in the community to carry out the theme, so we had to revert. By the spring of 1947, our founding years were over. We had 50 members and were admitted to the American Ethical Union at the Washington, uh, as the Washington Ethical Society. And Dr. George Beecham became the first leader, though on a volunteer basis. Now, we have sort of divided this uh, thing up between us, my wife and I, and I've taken the two uh, how this ethical society started and what our early platform meetings were like. And then I'm going to come back at the end about uh, the, the uh, tax case because people have asked me so many things about that and I want to have that as a final because it was a success. <laughs> Questions, which I am going to answer in outline form to make it brief. The first one is, what were some of the important events that helped develop this beginning group, this small group in the 1943-1944 uh, period? The one important thing was the Sunday school. There had been no Sunday school here. When we arrived in 1945, we had three children and wanted them to go so we could go and hear talks and uh, wanted them to have a constructive morning. So the board said to me, if you can find a non-segregated place Sunday morning, because we realized families would want to come Sunday morning, that doesn't cost much, we'll have a Sunday school. Well, it was a hard task, but with the help of a few people, we did find Friendship Settlement House in Southeast Washington, which fit the bill. And uh, we were there and started our Sunday school, which is still going on. And I'm very proud to know that you young folks are carrying it on. Then we had the UN dinners, which brought people together socially and rem helped us remember uh, the uh, war years and what uh, things were to be accomplished under the UN. And those are going on still. We're very happy that they are so successful. The uh, other thing we did was to have social events because people like to get together. And many of us were from somewhere else. We rarely knew anybody who was born in Washington. We had picnics in the parks, just as we're going to have a picnic today. And sometimes we used to have the young folks from the Encampment for Citizenship who were uh, visiting Washington. We'd have maybe 30 or 40 of them come in to be housed and to be fed. But that brought us all together, working to do that. Then we uh, entertained visiting leaders in our homes because that was less expensive than putting them up in a hotel. And we always had a social evening the night before uh, for the whole group. Of course, it was hard on the leaders because they probably wanted to relax and go to bed. And it was hard on us, but still it was very successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, 